mean, there were days where I was just so exhausted and I just didn't even want to get up out of bed because I didn't see the point. There's so much time that I that I spent wishing that the accident would have killed me because it felt like it was easier than to have to face the pain and face the challenges of everyday life. Um, but then there, I'd receive a message and some voice of encouragement, sometimes from a dear friend, sometimes from a complete stranger. And it just built this community that I felt that I had near and far. And it, and it let me discover the strength that I had within me, whether or not that I, you know, it was still there. I mean, trail running, I felt I could experience it in a new way, but talking with complete strangers or, or, or my friends supporting me, um, it also allowed me to kind of dig deep and, and find that within me. That's Hillary Allen, and this is episode 49 of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. It's your host, Mario Fraioli, and welcome back. Welcome to my podcast, where every week I try and glean as much insight and inspiration from some of the top athletes, coaches, and personalities in the sport of running. And this week's guest, well, she has those two things in spades, and it really comes out in this conversation. I sat down with Hillary Allen, who is a North Face-sponsored trail and ultra runner. She's made her biggest mark in the discipline of sky running, which takes place in super gnarly, technical high alpine environments. She was the U.S. sky running ultra champion in 2015. She's got course records and podium finishes at races all over the world. And the crazy thing is, she's only been in the sport for a few years and has rapidly ascended the ranks, quite literally, in a very short amount of time. But there's so much more to this incredible human being. She has a master's degree in neuroscience. She's got a thing for bugs. She was a collegiate tennis player. She coaches other runners and is just one of the nicest people that you'll ever meet. Hillary also has an incredible story about survival. She fell 150 feet. That is feet off the side of a mountain while racing in Norway a couple years ago, which we covered from a few different angles amongst a slew of other topics. This is a long one, folks. It's the longest podcast that I've recorded to date, but you'll want to listen to the entire thing because it really is that impactful. There's a lot to take away from this one and apply to your own life, including some of the pre-interview banter that I decided to leave in here because it was just that good. All right, that's enough of an introduction. Please enjoy my conversation with the incredible Hillary Allen. is important to me is that I have a diverse guest list and that I'm talking to athletes, coaches, personalities, just people who are doing interesting and inspiring things and running regardless of where that is. So on the Mm -hmm. roads, on the track, on the trails, in ultra, not even in any of those things. Maybe two episodes ago, I had this woman, Kayla Nolan, on and she runs, Mm -hmm. but she is the executive director of an organization called Girls Gotta Run. Yep. And they're creating opportunities for women in Ethiopia using running. Yep. Which is super cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it was it was awesome to just get her story out there and sort of what they're doing and make more people aware yep. of it because I think as runners, it can be really easy to pigeonhole yourself as a trail runner, as an ultra runner, as a track runner, as a marathoner, and just pay attention to what's going on in that little world and not know that there are other cool things happening in the sport as well. So. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I even have struggled with that too because 
I was like, well, I started as a tennis player. I'm, I'm, I've identified more as an athlete than a runner anyways. And I, I think that just gives me permission, especially in the off season and when I'm not racing. But even when I'm racing during a season is to ride bikes, to go skiing, to do other things and just be athletic and, and just be outside. Well, here's something interesting. As a coach and you coach as well, yeah. I first I say I coach people, not athletes, mm. but... I use that word athlete very specifically and not runners, even though I don't coach triathletes, I don't coach cyclists, but I coach athletes who specialize in running. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of the way I have always thought about it because I think a lot of runners don't think of themselves as athletes. They just think of themselves as runners. And that's a very like narrow-minded way to look at yourself. Yeah, and I think um, especially when, when injury comes along, because, I mean, especially if you're dealing with an athlete, an elite-level athlete, you're always teetering on that line of of injury or just being super, tra like, trained very well. So especially when, when injury comes, if your narrow definition of who you are just as a runner versus an athlete, I think it opens up more opportunities. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, especially with, with coaching for me too. I mean, I, anyone that I coach, I, it's like a puzzle, right? And it's not just about which workout makes them the most fit, right? It's about the mental aspect, how they balance that with, with work. And I mean, I encourage cross training and all of these different things. And I encourage like a full balanced lifestyle to support your athletic goals. Well, and there are a lot of complexities to that yeah. puzzle and a lot of different pieces. And it's not just workouts and weekly no. mileage <laughs> and races. Yeah. And I do coach some professional athletes and that is what they do to make a living. But even with those folks, it's important to help them realize that this pursuit of athletics is something that has to fit well into the rest of their life or they're not going to be the best athlete that they yeah. can be because there's so many other factors that are going to contribute to their success in that arena. Yeah. And I mean, if you're not, I feel like if you're not balanced or happy um, in the rest of your life, Maybe you can be a good athlete for a year, but that's not sustainable. Right. Yeah. So, we haven't even officially started yet, but I feel like I might just leave all of that in there. Yeah. So why not roll right into it? Hillary okay. Allen, mountain runner, science nerd, bug aficionado. Welcome to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we can add a newt finder to that list too. I'm actually going to go out there and try to find some of these newts that I couldn't find on the run today. So let's dig into that. And I learned this about you the other night at the Strava <laughs> Podcast launch party yeah. is that you are an insect aficionado, more or less. <laughs> yeah. When did that start for you? Oh, man. I've always just been so curious from when I was a little girl. Like, literally, I was out camping before I could even walk. Like, I was in one of those, like, baby Bjorns in the front of my mother um, <laughs> before I could walk. So I, like, grew up outside. Um, but I've always just had a curiosity for the things around me. And I've always been playing in the dirt and looking, looking on the ground for things. Um, so... I literally have wanted to be an entomologist, so study of insects, since I was, probably since when I could talk. Um, I actually went to career day in kindergarten dressed as an entomologist and like I brought my insect collection. That's pretty nerdy. Oh, it's really nerdy. Um, and I told them I wanted to get my PhD and be an entomologist. I think I dressed up for Halloween like... I don't know, five years running, probably more, um, as an entomologist, like literally carrying my bug collection, trick-or-treating. And I think people were just appalled. They're like, what is this girl doing? Um, but so it's been a part of me for a really long time. And I think it just goes with 
I like to be outside and I'm constantly looking around. I have a really keen eye for very small things. <laughs> and and also I'm just curious. So I notice things, I think. Um, I um, just, I don't know, I'm, I'm constantly looking for something on the ground or just in the trees or anything. Um, animals, but in particular insects. Um, they're just so delicate and I feel like they tell you a bunch about the health of an ecosystem and um, they're just so interesting. And also my other, my second love um, <laughs> is chemistry. And I think insects are a perfect model for like how chemistry works um, in the world. And so it's just fascinating. It's just science, I think, at its core. And yeah, I've, I like, I even worked, I volunteered as a, um, <laughs> in like sixth grade through high school at an entomology lab at Colorado State University in Fort Collins where I grew up. And so it like, was a hobby, but like I was, I was working with the grad students there as there's like identifying, classifying their insects. So I learned an immense amount. <laughs> when you're out running now, you have no problem stopping to no. take photos of bugs, maybe talk to them, yeah, get to learn a little bit more about them. I name them. I the name really? all of them that I find. Usually it's some sort of alliteration. Like if it's a slug, I'll say Sally the slug or like... <laughs> Like, come up with a different name. Only on training runs, never in races. <laughs> never in races. Because that's an important distinction. Like for me, training, I mean, it's what we were talking about earlier. I think it's all about balance. And the, let's be honest, like the majority of my training, um, it's easy running. And so like a long endurance run, like you're, you know, I, I do stop. Of course, I want to keep my heart rate down. And if I'm an endurance runner and it's volume, the bulk of my training is easy. So I Maybe there's two exceptions to when I'll stop for a, a bug on the trail during a workout and racing because they're not supposed to stop. <laughs> so what happens in a race? Because you've run in some pretty exotic places oh, yeah. where you'll see a bug that you want to get to know better, but you're in the <laughs> middle of a race and you can't let too many people pass you. you can't because, let anyone. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's your job. You, yeah. you run these races and need to get to the finish line yeah. as fast as possible. So what do you do in those situations? And, and has that ever happened in a race oh, where you've been like, man, I would really like to get to know Sally the Slug over here, but I've got to keep my butt moving. Oh man, usually I just get so excited. Yeah, it's happened multiple times, in fact. Um, and usually I'll just like scream or like have some sort of like excitement reaction and like I'll see it and I obviously won't step on the bug like um and I don't even have time to stop and like move it if it's on the trail so that really bothers me so I really hope other people like notice or like gets out of the way before anyone comes by but um I'll usually just have a reaction like that was running in in it was Val de Serre, um and I saw literally like three four different kinds of caterpillars on this run and I mean, I have a keen eye, so I got a good look. So I remember what they look like vividly, but I was just kind of like, ah, like I want to stop, but I can't. <laughs> um, and that, that happens all the time. I mean, I remember, I mean, I can tell you this story if you like the one I told in the Star Wars podcast, but please tell it. It's okay. a great story. <laughs> so I was in this race. Um, it was in Spain, it's an Ultra Pyrenee. And I went out there early to train on the course. Like it's usually I like to get there early, especially with international travel. And so I was running parts of the course and I heard they had these like alpine newts, these alpine salamander things out in the Pyrenees. And so like the whole time on my training runs, I'm like looking in the rivers and like looking to see if I could find this salamander. And I was unsuccessful. And, um, but I still found like a lot of good insects and all these, all this, all these other wildlife things. Um, but uh, so the race comes and it's a 110 kilometer race, pretty gnarly. And 
I had just kind of, I think it was about 100K into the race and the last 10K, um, it was like started to get dark. I had just come off of like a major bonk and I was not feeling good. And so I came into this aid station and I was trying to, you know, eat everything I could, settle my stomach. And we had like 10 kilometers left. It was like the last, the last climb was something ridiculous. Like in 5K, no joke, we climbed a thousand meters and then we had to descend it. It was a gnarly last 10K. It's a gnarly. Yeah. <laughs> I know. And so I'm just like, gosh, okay. And it was one of the most technical sections of the course, which I like, but we literally had to kind of like crawl our way up this riverbed. And I was, um, you know, it was at night, so it was in my headlamp, um, and I was in second place at this point, and I really wanted to catch first, but I think I was feeling bad, so I was like, I don't know if I can. Um, and she was maybe like 20 minutes ahead of me at this point. And as I'm leaving the aid station, the third place girl comes, and I'm, and like she looks strong, and I'm like, oh, fuck. <laughs> I don't know if I can cuss on this thing. <laughs> I, that's literally what went through my head. Um, and I was, I was like, and I was just like, crap, what am I going to do? Like, I have to keep going. Like... And I was like, I don't know if I can hammer. And um, so I started to go and I start meandering up this this waterfall. It's like super rocky and um, slippery, obviously. And I'm just thinking like, oh, okay, well, I can see her headlamp coming. I'm like, crap, should I turn off my headlamp? Like, I don't want her to catch me. I don't want her to see where I am. And I was like, no, it's dark. Like, you need to use your headlamp. And as I'm crossing over this riverbed, I look down and I see this freaking alpine newt in the water just hanging out first time you've seen it the entire time yes. you're in spain yeah despite being there a week ahead of time exactly and i'm just like oh my gosh and i was so excited i literally had to put my hand over my mouth because i was screaming out of excitement and i was like in my head i was like i want to stop to pick it up oh my gosh like i wanted to interact with this thing so bad and I couldn't. I had to keep most going. Most inopportune moment for that. It to was happen. the most inopportune moment. But I think that that little salamander—I'll call him Samuel—he, um, I think, propelled me up that riverbed. It was like this rush of adrenaline that I needed because suddenly I wasn't thinking about how bad my stomach hurt. I was like, "Oh my gosh! Like I just saw this. This is amazing!" And I can't give away my position because she's right there. And so I just like went for it, and I almost caught the first place lady. And I think I put like. 20 minutes or something on this this lady behind me. And I think it was all because I found that salamander. It's amazing where you can get energy <laughs> from, especially in a situation like yeah. that where you feel like the tank is pretty empty. Exactly. So I think that's also why I love trail running because um, you never know what you can encounter. I mean, I've had literally almost every single wildlife encounter. A skunk in Patagonia, bears, grizzly and black bears. What's been the scariest? Oh, man, the skunk was pretty scary. I don't want him to just like to spray me. Um, let's see. What was the scariest? Oh, moose encounter in in Colorado outside in the Indian Peaks. I literally, it was one of those epic days. Like it was a crazy run. I literally lost the trail because like the, the winds were so horrible that they blew a bunch of trees down and I lost the trail. So I literally had to get in a creek find where the trail intersected it again, made my way back up this pass. And somehow along the way, um, my headlamp had turned on in my backpack and the batteries were dead when I went to go use it. So I was using my phone to like, and iPhone lights, it's not good. Um, I was using my phone to like navigate my way back to the car and um, on this little section of trail. And I literally run into a pack of bull moose, five of them just staring at me. 
They're not super friendly, are they? They are. Hor- they are not friendly. I, in fact, like moose are more dangerous than bears in where I live. And uh, it was rutting season. So, you know, they were super not friendly and very territorial. They weren't getting off the trail. I like got behind this big old tree um, and they were like following me. There's five of them and one of you. Yeah. And then there's one calf. So it's like five bull, not uh, one cow. So it was like five bull moose, like trying to get to this like female moose and I'm in their way. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so bad. And, uh, I like was basically like tree hopping through the woods, ran into another bull moose, and then I had like I was without my headlamp and and like turned off my iPhone light. And I think I was out there for an extra hour before I finally just like sprinted off when I didn't see them anymore and made it to my car 35 miles later. <laughs> so we are gonna get into why other reasons why you love trail running. Yeah. But what's clear from the beginning of our conversation is that you love science and yes. <laughs> You do not study insects professionally, but you are involved in science outside of your running Mm -hmm. pursuits. Mm -hmm. Where did your love of science start? Oh, man. my Both of my uh, parents are scientists. So um, I think I was just born with this curiosity. There's like this baby picture that my parents have for me when I'm super little and just able to crawl. And I have these eyes and it's they're like piercing through the camera, kind of like looking and just being like, what is that? And that curiosity, I think, is to me what makes a good scientist. Um, I mean, obviously, I've practiced science and I've been a formal scientist for a while. Um, but that curiosity of just constantly asking questions and constantly observing and making hypotheses and kind of through experimentation or, or questioning, you can find out these answers. Um, that's what I've done my whole life. And um, that is what I love about trail running too, because it's it's an experiment. It's an active experiment with my physical body, which is basically just a big, you know, science experiment anyways. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's why I love it because it's the marriage of, of all of what I, like how I view the world on a daily basis, which is like through this lens of chemistry. Um, like I think about um, metabolism or, you know, how a tree is getting food from the light or, you know, the oxygen um, in the air. So um, yeah, it's just been a part of me from when I was a little girl and uh, chemistry is like my favorite topic in in science. Um, and that's what I'm formally trained in. However, I have a master's in neuroscience um, and, you know, I, I went to graduate school with my chemistry degree and then I learned biochemistry. Um, so it's like the basis. If you have a good base, then you can kind of learn anything, especially if you have a curious enough mind. Why did you end up going in that specific direction? Neuroscience? Oh, man. Um, the brain to me is just a big, you know, well, your whole body, but the brain in particular is like a perfect model of how chemistry can affect us as human beings. Um, Obviously, from the scientific point of view, I love neuroscience just because everyone's brain chemistry is slightly slightly different and whether it like, you know, can one variation in the chemical in your brain can cause like addiction or it can cause like a mood disorder or it can cause differences in personality, how you input information into your, you know, your computer, which is your brain. It's all based on little chemicals. Um, But also the beautiful part about it is that as a scientist, yeah, I can explain away all of these 
you know, theories and how how your brain circuitry will work on a very, very chemical level and very scientific level. But at the end of the day, as a scientist, we don't know what the heck's going on, especially in the brain. Like, what is consciousness? We don't even know what that is. We're still just beginning to learn how we form new memories and how a certain emotion like fear or happiness or love dictates how we can remember something. Like everyone in the world, if they have a super painful memory or like a big fall, like me with my injury, I remember that vividly. I remember it as if it happened yesterday, as if it happened 10 minutes ago. And it's because it's associated with a strong sensation of physical pain, emotional pain, um, it's, we, all, it's all very interconnected. Yeah, but we don't even know how that works. Like I can have theories and I can identify the chemicals present in those pathways or the ion channels and blah, 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 all of this stuff. But to me, the beautiful part about neuroscience is how specific it is. It's also that mysterious. And I feel like that's the human experience as well, is that we can be super specific with training We can train our bodies to the best of our ability of how we understand it, but there's also this part of it that's intangible and that, you know, if if I'm just as fit as the person next to me on the starting line, someone's going to win. And there's this intangible mental aspect of life, of the human experience in general, that's just so magical. And I can try to understand it, but... There's beauty in not understanding it. Well, and that's part of what makes sport fun. Yes. What makes competition yeah. really interesting mm-hmm. because if it was a science experiment that you could repeat over and over mm-hmm. and over again and get the same results, it would get boring after yeah. a while. Exactly. And I think, I mean, running in general, I mean, with road running and, or, you know, any any sport, you know, cycling, think of a sport where you, like, I know cycling has a ton of information, a ton of data-driven, um, like, training and tools that they use to optimize their performance. Same with road running. Um, but even if you have someone, 10 people with the same exact numbers, like VO2 max, power output, all of this other stuff, on, a, on race day, someone is going to win. And that might be due to their emotional health. It might be due to their stress level. It might be due to like their mood that day. And I can't explain that with science. Yeah, there's just so many variables yeah. in there that are going to contribute to a given outcome. Yeah. And anyone who tells you that they know exactly why that was the case is probably full of shit. Exactly. And <laughs> so that's the beautiful part of it. So that's what drew me to neuroscience is because it's so scientific and it's, it's I think, the probably most intricate system in our entire bodies. Um, but there's this intangible part of it that no matter how much I study it, I'm never going to completely understand it or it's just going to take forever to completely understand all the intricacies in my brain, but also just like there's so many variabilities across the human race. Um, It's so intriguing to me because as I mean, as a scientist, I want all the answers. So, but it's, it's also really cool to just be like, I don't know. It's, it's just beautiful because it's that complex. Let's put a pin in that. There are a lot of things there that I want to come back to, and we will. Okay. Let's go back to your childhood. Yeah. When did sports come into your life? Whoa. When, uh, probably, I mean, as soon as I could walk, I was, I always describe myself, I don't know if I would like this term, but a tomboy. I mean, I was always trying to play sports. I was always outside. Um, I think I tried every single sport as a kid just because I loved to move. Um 
my I grew up I grew up camping. So as as a family, we'd always go on these big road trips to, you know, every state to go to these national parks and and hike and run and ski and I mean, maybe not run, but as a little kid, I was probably running around the campground. Um but yeah, that's how I grew up just outside and exploring nature. And I think that's being very active. I mean, <laughs> I grew up, I mean, I learned how to downhill ski when I was three. I would always go cross-country skiing with my family. They're very active. Um, I remember this one time, I was also very stubborn. So I feel like that's a good recipe for having an athletic person. Um, we went cross-country skiing and, you know, I was a growing kid. So my feet were constantly changing size every six months. And uh, we went to rent these cross-country ski boots. And when we got to the trailhead, we realized that the people had given me two left boots. Well, instead of driving the two hours back home, me, as see where this is going. stubborn Hillary, who... Yes, I'm stubborn, but I also just love to be outside. I skied in two left boots all day. And my feet hurt so, well, one of my, my right foot hurt so bad. But it's like, I didn't care because I just wanted to be outside and to move. So I think that's when I was like nine, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> and you didn't start running till much later yeah. in life. Mm-hmm. And we'll get to that. But you played tennis mm-hmm. very competitively. In yeah. Fact, through college. When did you start, for, well, first start picking up a racket? Ninth grade. So I, exactly. I was a very late bloomer. Like normally people who get tennis scholarships, um, tennis is one of those sports like with your brain cerebellum, muscle memory. Um, generally speaking, a lot of professional tennis players or semi-professional tennis players have to be playing tennis from when they are three, four years old um, just to gain that muscle memory. Um it's a sport that requires a lot of uh, technique. Um, but I kind of relied on my athleticism and I got really in- interested in it. And in ninth grade, I decided to try out for the my high school tennis team. And um, my mom actually taught me tennis just for fun. Um, but yeah, so I, I did that and I made the tennis team. In fact, I made like the number three singles position, which is pretty good to be able to play singles your first time around. And uh, I worked my butt off on the technique aspect of it. But I also just was able to run every ball down and I was, I could learn very quickly. Um, And I got good enough to earn a scholarship to play tennis in college. Um, And yeah, then I played, I played collegiate, collegiate tennis. And after that, in fact, I was on um, tennis leagues so I was, I was competing at the open division. So that's where you can, you know, win money. So it's like semi, semi-pro um, tennis. Um, yeah. And then after that, I mean, I don't know when exactly I started running, but it, that's when I was in graduate school and it, and it kind of just, it, it just became too time intensive to find someone else to play, to do these tournaments that were all day. And I was in graduate school at that moment and it was becoming just a little bit tedious. Um, And I kind of got just burned out on the whole thing. And so one of the most time efficient ways to train and to kind of get a mental release was running. And um, in fact, I have running in my blood. My dad was a marathoner back in the day and he's, he's a, he's a British citizen. And so he actually, he's 75 years old now. So 55 years ago, he ran like a 228 marathon. 
which if you do the math, that's actually pretty damn good. <laughs> I'm a 227.33 marathoner, oh, yeah. so that is 535-ish a mile. Yeah. That is really damn good. Yeah, so, um, you know, that's like, you know, back when they were... I don't even know, like, <laughs> not in the olden days, not running in sandals, but like, you know, they don't have the technology, they didn't have the training, he was just basically an amateur runner. That's impressive no yeah. matter how you yeah. context it. So, exactly, so my dad was a runner, but, you know, so running was always in my blood, my sister was a runner, she actually had a scholarship to play in, uh, to not play, to run in college, um, she ended up not doing that, but I was never the runner, I was always like the one who had coordination and could like catch a ball. <laughs> Um, but, uh, I just decided to run because it just kind of made sense. And from there, um, it just kind of clicked. Well, this is all really fascinating because (laughs) knowing what I know about you now, putting these pieces together from the beginning, this love of the outdoors from pretty much right when you were born and being carried around in your mom's baby Bjorn (laughs) to this wide-eyed curiosity, which led you to pursue science, which is a very analytical pursuit, to becoming a very good tennis player in a very short period of time, just a fast responder and showing a competency in something not long after undertaking it and seeing how that's kind of gotten you to where you are now, because you've only been running competitively for a little over five years Yeah, at this um, point. Yeah, I think my first my first official trail running season was 2014. And so I started in two, like started running in 2013. So um but that was just, you know, literally if you if you say someone like couch to 5k, like that was me. I wasn't I was running in tennis, but I wasn't a runner. I don't think I could I couldn't remember the last time I ran over 5 miles when I first started running. And that was somewhere in the summer of 2013. And when you first started running consistently when you were in grad school and a little burned out on tennis at that point, and it's an efficient use of your time, when did you realize it was something that you liked and wanted to explore even more? Yeah, I was really hesitant about it at first because I didn't want to get burnt out on running. And so I didn't really want to do any of these races because I wasn't sure I would like it. And I wanted to just preserve that kind of play time and freedom for me. Um, and I'm not sure if you know who this is, but Janie Day, so Janie Day Lucor, she held the record on Pikes Peak Ascent um, and the Mount Washington Ascent okay. in the 80s. This was before Kim Dobson. Um, she was from Iowa, which is actually, I went to school in Iowa to play tennis, but she was um, living in Denver. And I did this kind of group uh, run, uh, you know, search, and I kind of needed a run group that would go early in the morning and live rather close to me um, just because of going to grad school. And I found this run club and it was headed up by this woman, Janie. Well, I went and it was these uh, 50-year-old ladies who were like Olympic trial marathoners, like just still killing it. And here I was, this 25, 24-year-old who like was just totally new. And um, running at like five in the morning, 5.30 in the morning with these ladies. And it quickly became just my, like, I just love that time so much. And Janie, of course, she was competitive. And so she kind of took me under her wing and coached me to my first marathon. But I was very methodical about the whole way. Like, I wasn't sure I could do it. And so I wanted, I would like run these training runs with these people, like do like, you know, back-to-back 20 milers or something and be like, okay, like I think I can handle a marathon distance. And um, that first marathon was CIM. Um, that was my first competition ever. 
um, like for running. It was the wet year. It was the super wet year. Oh my gosh. It was, uh, there was like six inches of standing water and I like, like put body glide and like petroleum jelly on my feet so I wouldn't get blisters. Um, but yeah, it was, it was then, um, that I decided to do running and I wasn't sure if I like was in love with it. Um, the road was fun. The road running was fun to me, like the exploration of distance and how far I could go. And also like, I really enjoyed the speed workouts cause I could see the progression of how fast I could go. Sure. And, um, then after that, I decided to do kind of like a self-supported, um, uh, <laughs> road marathon because I wanted to like break three hours. Because <laughs> your first one you ran, three, I think you told me the other night, 315 or yeah, something in that range. So it's okay, but. It's a pretty solid <laughs> debut. It's all right. I mean, it's not that great, but. Um, What'd you do in that self-supported one? I ran a 250, like 49 or something like that, like 250, like two, yeah, so. Just on your own self-made course and all? Well, it was around Wash Park, so it was okay. like a two and a quarter mile loop. Over and um, over and over again? Over and over and over again. And yeah, sometimes I like change the direction, but I just pretty much went the same way because I didn't want to lose time. A couple of my friends like came out, like, you know, like rode their bike around with me and like for a few laps. <laughs> and then after that, it was like, okay, I don't think I want to road run for a while. <laughs> um, but yeah. Um, and then I, Janie, actually, she was a trail runner. Um, but she saw like my potential for, I think, uphill running um, in some of these workouts that I would do and my strength and all that stuff. And so she encouraged me to, as my recovery runs every Sunday, is to go to a trail. And I could just go as fast, as slow as I wanted and just, you know, recover and do like the little mountain trot. Just enjoy it. Yeah. And so, but it was then that I just started just to really love those Sundays. Like I would look forward to them every week. And it was like a reward at the end of like, you know, marathon training can be quite monotonous and really hard. And so um, I just, I loved that. And then after that, that Wash Park Marathon, I just started leaving my house at 4.30 in the morning to go run on a trail before I had to be back to work. And then pretty soon I moved out to the foothills and would commute into, um, into graduate school because I just wanted to run. I wanted to be close to those trails or right out my door. And I just fell in love with it. And in 2013, when I ran that uh, marathon, I had no idea that ultra running was even a thing. And then that next season, 2014, I did my first um, 50 mile race and my first 50K. And um, in fact, it was kind of a funny story. It's how I met my coach, actually. <laughs> my coach is Adam St. Pierre. I met him at my first 50 mile race. Um, but uh, I almost beat him, in fact. <laughs> I was only like 30 seconds behind him, but it was my first 50 mile race. I somehow set a new course record and, um, I just had so much fun. Of course there was like one, like I experienced my first bonk, so that wasn't fun, but then I discovered how important M&Ms and like chocolate are for, you know, train or for running. <laughs> They're magic. Yeah. Like magic beans. They can revive you. Yes. In those magic little moments. beans and Coca-Cola. <laughs> um, and so I just remember that and just. I was so scared because I didn't know what would happen after a 50K and I didn't, my legs didn't fall off. And, um, then I was like, oh, Hey, okay. Like maybe I have a knack for this. And I started using running and doing races in particular as a way to explore different places that I had never gone. Or the, even the cool thing was is rediscover places that I had gone as a kid, but I wasn't a runner then and explore them in a new way. Yeah. 
And that's now what I love to do. And at that time, was it even a competitive thing or was it really just an exploratory thing for you? It was, I think it was just an exploratory thing. It really wasn't, I didn't, I like going into these races, all I wanted to do was just finish and have as much fun as I could and see the views and see the sunrise and look at the wild wildflowers and hopefully find some new bugs along the way as well. Um, <laughs> but it was just, it was just, it was a cool goal for me to see if I could run that far, if I could run this much elevation gain or change. Um, but it was never really a competitive thing. And even as I've gotten into more competitive races, for me, it's always been about the journey. Like, I think it's a celebration to just be on the start line. So you had mentioned how when you were a tennis player, a competitive tennis player, you got burned out on it, which mm. is sort of how you got into running. Mm-hmm. What do you do now or what have you done since you started running to not lose that sense of adventure, that sense of fun, even though you are a competitive athlete who makes a good part of your living at mm-hmm. the sport? Yeah, it's it's um, it's um a constant balance and, exper- and like experiment that I have to do. Um, for me, two, well, at least two things that are very important taking an off season, so not um, competing year round, that provides me the mental break. And of course, I, I love to train. Um, I always have. Like I said, I love to move. So my problem is not finding the motivation to train and do the long hours that re- are required for these types of races. For me, it's the opportunity to have like a deep breath and to not have the mental pressure of, oh my gosh, I need to put together this week and this week and this week in order to be prepared for this race. Um, I can just play and I can, I can ski, I can ride my bike, I can do other things that aren't necessarily specific to this race that I'm training for. That's one thing that I do. Um, and the other part of it, um, this is the reason why I have a coach is because like I said, I don't have a problem getting out there. I need a coach to tell me what workouts to do because I'm not experienced in that way. Um, and sometimes I need extra support around that. Um, I still get nervous for that kind of stuff. Like, oh my gosh, can I do this? Like, is this going to be fast enough? Um, but the the complementary part to that is is just a completely exploratory run. Like, it doesn't matter pace. It doesn't matter, you know, miles. Like, I can just go out and do these crazy ridgeline scrambles. Like, this race that I would do, this, this run that I did this past summer, um, and I hadn't been able to do this type of run just due to all my injuries. Um, it was so important for me. And it just, like, runs to me that feed my soul. They're not for any other purpose. Um, and this is the mummy traverse. I basically climbed six, um, 13ers, um, like they're pretty gnarly 13ers in the mummy range in Colorado and Rocky Mountain National Park. And you spend the whole time above treeline and it's so beautiful and you're not moving fast. That sounds amazing. Yeah. It's like literally I was pinning it. Like at, like we would drop down 500 to a thousand feet and then to like regain the ridge I was like going like 15 minute miles and like, you know, like you could like your, your heart rate like so high. Yeah. Exactly. I'm just like, what's going on? Um, but yeah, it runs like that where it really doesn't matter. It's just like you're out there all day and you just kind of, you'd have a picnic on the peaks and yeah, it's just those, those types of runs are really important for me to like guard my stoke, I think is what I say. Yeah. And I think those are important takeaways for any runner, especially mm-hmm. the non elites. Mm-hmm. And it's something I battle as a coach, especially one who lives in California and has a bunch of athletes here because you can run year round round. and you have to force yourself to take that Mm -hmm. break because it's important for longevity. Mm -hmm. And as ultra running 
as a sport grows and more and more races come up and these cool things that everyone else is doing create that feeling of FOMO, it can be really hard to <laughs> step back and just stay put for a couple of months yeah. because there's always something to chase no matter what time of year it is because you can always just travel out of your own backyard and go explore somewhere. And, and that's, yeah. that's great. It's awesome that we have that, but it can also be dangerous if you're not careful. Absolutely. I mean, you, you said it 100% correctly. Um, I completely agree with you. And it's it's really hard even to in the front range because I could run you around if I want to. I mean, it might snow for a little bit, but then it's so sunny in Colorado that down low in Boulder, it melts away. So you can you can run your round if you really want to. Um, but yeah, for me, it's it's just, I think it's so important too, to, um, <laughs> I mean, to recognize the FOMO because I definitely have it and I love to be out there, but it's, being being able to say, okay, like I can have perspective and I don't need to be doing this right now. And in fact, it's better for me to be able to take a rest and go ski and have something that's low impact for a while and still be able to get out there. It's the best way for me to experience the winter. Um, but it's also really hard too, because I feel like with the growth of ultra running, there's people that are coming into the sport and they're gung-ho and ready to go. And they're going to like kill it maybe for a year. They want to do all the things. All the things. But then like you see it and this burnout is real. I mean, especially with ultra running, from what I know scientifically, what happens in your body, you need a lot of recovery time. Um, and it's it's unobt- it's not sustainable to be able to race that hard. Maybe it is for a couple of years, but then, you know, if, if if I go after like the same races with that same vigor and I lack perspective, then I don't want to just be running for two years. I want to be competing for a long time. And it can be hard to dig yourself out of that hole mm-hmm. once you're in it. And we've yeah. seen that certainly at the top levels of yeah. the sport, but even on the lower levels, people who just get a little too excited, go at it a little too hard yeah. and then can't go at it at all, which is the worst case scenario. Yeah. And especially with like, you know, balancing, that's why we were talking about earlier is um, balancing everything with um, a healthy lifestyle. I mean, it is it is about training, but it's also about balancing everything else and being able to weight things equally and have perspective. That leads to, I think, happier people and happier athletes. We're going to come back to that as we get deeper into your story. <laughs> yeah. When did you become Hilly Goat? Hilly Goat. Oh, gosh. Your nickname. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, this is an embarrassing for me, but um, <laughs> it was actually from an ex-boyfriend of mine. Um, he, so I, I was just getting into running and I think we met on a trail. And um, so our, our relationship kind of involved running um, very early on a lot of it. And he was, he had run like hundred milers and he was a very seasoned runner. Him and his friend group were like all, you know, they go out on group runs and like do the typical like run, beer, like barbecue. It was super fun. Um, and so I kind of got involved in this, but I was new to running. Um, and Boulder, Colorado is pretty famous for running, but I I had just started. So I had I hadn't run these peaks that everyone talks about. Um, you know, Bear Peak, Green Mountain. So we did this like crazy run. I think we were linking up Bear and Green, that run. And I had never been on trails that steep, never in my life. I had no idea if I could do it. And so I thought to myself, well, all right, you're just going to run or like move, you know? And I found out at this point that you could do this thing called power hiking. Um, So I was like, all right, sweet. I can just like move until I'm just tired and then I'll stop. And I was going on this run and I'm like talking and then, you know, all of a sudden I just keep it on moving. And then I get to the top of this mountain. I look back behind me and there's no one there. And I'm like, 
oh crap, did I make a wrong turn? Like what's going on? And uh, finally I see, I see these people coming up and um, <laughs> my boyfriend and his friend, they come up and they're like, damn, like you're like a goat. I'm going to start calling you hilly goat. And so fitting. Yeah. And so, and I mean, there's so many puns in it. I really love it. But, um, and so that's kind of, I was dubbed Hilly Goat. And then from then on out, like at my birthday, like, um, he gave me like a little stuffed, <laughs> like Billy Goat. <laughs> um, so yeah, from then on, I've just been Hilly Goat. <laughs> How'd you end up in the front of the group? Anyway, you're new to trail <laughs> running and you're off the front. Is it just, does that just come naturally to you? Or you were like, I'll find my way. I, yeah. Because usually with new runners, they're like, oh, I'm new to this, especially when you haven't done steep stuff like that. You're like, I'll just tuck into the pack and sort of like follow along so I don't get lost. And yeah. Well, I think up. at that point, like they were like stopping and like, I was like, well, I'm not hungry yet. So I'm just going to like keep going. And like, you know, like, um, it, it, like they were, I thought that they were close behind me. So they would like tell me if I was like going off trail. And also I really like to talk. So I was just kind of like talking and kind of like, Get, just, I was just into it. I was just so cool. I was like, wow, like I'm, we're going up this huge mountain. Like it was so cool. And yeah, I think it's one of those, like I'm just like having a conversation with myself and didn't realize there was no one there to talk to me anymore. <laughs> hey, it's time for a quick pause so we can thank our sponsor for this episode. It is Strava. Now, if you've been following me long enough, you know that I love Strava. I'm an avid user. I've been on the platform for five years. You can check out my training if you want, but you should check out their new podcast. It's called Athletes Unfiltered, and it is a collection of inspiring stories from the Strava community told by the runners and cyclists who live them. You'll hear from a runner who loses his sight and discovers a new community, a drummer who passes up the after party so he can get up early to ride bikes with his fans and connect in a way that he never could from on stage. A mountain biker who watched the trails that he loves burst into flames, and then he created an app to help rally his community around rebuilding them. And along the way, they'll tackle some of the big scary questions that every athlete has to find answers to, like, why am I doing this? Am I getting too old? Will I ever run again? And no, that's not just me asking these questions to myself out loud, but the answers these athletes give might help you find some of your own. I recommend giving the Athletes Unfiltered podcast a listen. You can subscribe to it wherever you consume your audio content. That's Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts. All the platforms should have it. They also have a landing page at blog.strava.com slash podcast that has links to every episode they've posted so far. I highly recommend checking it out. I've enjoyed the first couple episodes so far. I look forward to listening to the wide range of athlete stories that they have in store and will be rolling out over the next several months. Um... And that's it. My thanks to Strava for their support of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. When did you realize that you had a knack for trail and ultra running and that you could be competitive in the sport? So actually, going back to my ex-boyfriend, I think he realized it before I did because he's the one that encouraged me to do these like this 50-mile race um, because he was doing the 100. And... um, like I said, I just loved moving. I just loved running. And um, a lot of our like relationship and a lot of my friends friendships at that time were like kind of being built around running. Like we'd go on these cool long like road trips or vacations. I did my first, I did Trans Zion just as a fun vacation with, you know, him and these other these a couple of these other people. And um I was like fostering these cool relationships and this new lifestyle. And uh I just really liked it. So um I think he realized it more than I did because I, even to this day, I would be completely fine and content if I didn't even do a formalized race. 
I just want to be able to move and and do these cool um, adventures. And I mean, even even today, these these races that I do, like they're great. And the reason why I like them is because they challenge me and they scare me a little bit. And it's a cool opportunity to explore a certain region. But the training is, I enjoy the training just as much because if not more, because I get to, you know, take my time and you know, enjoy of Chamonix when I go there and um, I'll stay there for a month and use it as a training ground. Um, or I'll go, I went to Mount Olympus in Greece last in 2017 and um, I stayed there for three weeks before I did this race. And it's a great opportunity for me to just enjoy the terrain and the scenery. Um, so like I said, I, could, I would be completely happy and content if I didn't have to do a formal race. In fact, to me, a lot of the cool courses out there are actually not races themselves. So I have a lot of those ideas in my head of what of routes that I want to do. Um, but I think definitely after that first 50-mile race and um, that same season, I ended up competing in the Skyrunning uh, series, the U.S. Skyrunning series. I did Speed Goat and Run the Rut and um, Flagstaff Sky Race and actually ended up winning the U.S. Skyrunning series. And it was then that different brands started to talk to me and I considered um, doing this more competitively. What was it about those sky running type of races, which are typically high alpine, sort of high risk environments Mm -hmm. that was appealing to you? The exploration part of it. Um, Just being in awe of the course and never going on top of these mountains and then thinking like, holy crap, am I going to actually do this today? Like in, you know, at Run the Rut, you see Lone Peak and they've built those trails at the ski resort. And I'm thinking to myself, can I do this? And then you're up there and you're moving and you're, and I'm, and I'm able to do it and have so much fun. And um, it'd be a challenge for sure, but also just the process is just so much fun. Um, so that's what drew me to it. And of course, with my nickname, I just loved the uphill. <laughs> and then I kind of actually sucked at downhill running at first and it kind of scared me. Um, so I literally, I remember my first times on the trails, I would walk downhill or just go very slowly. Um, but then the more practice I got going up, obviously, the more practice I got going down. And then I've begun to love the the technical side of running downhill and... Um, yeah, what what it like to for what you go up, you have to go down. So now I really like both aspects of it. You mentioned how you could even do without some of these races. It's the training where you have learned a lot about yourself and where mm-hmm. you've gotten to explore. What are some of the biggest lessons that you have learned through training over the past five years or so? Man, um is that to never give up? Um is that relentless forward progress? actually works um that you can you can do these incredible things and go these incredible distances and up and down mountains um i've learned the importance of eating during runs <laughs> um and that snacks are great and like the little like the little joys um the little joys that just the simplicity of you know like I, I eat scratch gummies, like, you know, eating my favorite little scratch gummies in the middle of a run. <laughs> um, and it's just the, one of the parts that I love about running and exploration and um, it's just feeling small and a part and a part of this world and connected. Um, and it just, I've heard, I heard this um, from someone that strength is a feeling and just that it's nothing, it doesn't come in a certain 
like size or shape. Um, it's this, it's this feeling. And, um, through running, I think I've discovered that. And it's, everyone says at least lots of athletes that I've talked to is their sport makes them a better person. And I think, um, it's through trail running that I've discovered what strength is for me. And, um, yeah, it just, it's something that I've taken with me in racing, but also just in pursuits of my career or, um, science or anything else. So along those lines, let's go to summer of 2017. Mm. You have had a successful athletic run up to that point, mm-hmm. winning races. You're sponsored by the North Face. You're traveling the world. You're getting to explore. You go to Norway to <laughs> run a 50K. Mm-hmm. One of those, it's called a typical hilly goat race. <laughs> high, high alpine, yeah. very rocky, technical terrain. You're running along, loving life, loving exploring, this new country, this new trail that you've never been on, and then the earth literally falls out from under you, and yeah. you fall thirty meters, hundred and fifty or feet, so, hundred fifty feet, yeah, feet. Take me through that day. Yeah, and so I remember this was a big bucket list race um, because I'd never, I've been to Norway, but I'd never been that far north. And it was a Skyrun Extreme race. So it had this like gnarly ridge on it. And that's what I really love to do. I love to scramble in the mountains. It's like third and fourth class. So, you know, using not only my feet, but my arms and my hands to maneuver across terrain. And Killian Jornet and Emily Forsberg are the race directors. Yep. So, you know, it's not going to be easy. No, exactly. It's a really legit race. And um, they're both good friends of mine and they're they're amazing. And so I really wanted to go experience their race. And at this point, I'm actually leading the World Skyrunning Series. So I'm, I'm number one in the, in the world at this point in this ultra division of races that I'm competing in. And so I have nothing to lose going into this race. And I'm having so much fun. And um, there was this joke that Mike Foote, teammate of mine, he said, he's like, well, generally speaking, when Hillary goes out to have fun on these runs, she usually does pretty well. And so that was my mentality going into this race. And I think um, as the race got more technical and steeper, I just felt more and more at home in my own just body. And just, I was enjoying it so much. Um, And yeah, there was one moment when I was on this ridge and I remember seeing my friends and photographers and being happy and... um, like I was in podium position at this point. I remember if I was in second or third, but I was doing really well. And um, one step and I didn't even have time to react. There was no momentary like realization that, oh, you know, sometimes when you stub your toe or like you're about to fall on the trail, you're like, oh crap, like I'm going to fall. That didn't happen. It was so fast. So it was just this, these rocks gave way underneath my foot. And um, just- second you're running and- not even the next second you're falling. Yeah. And that's when it was. It was literally like one second I was running, the next second the horizon was upside down. And um, from there, it was just like slow motion, um, literally remembering the sensation of impacting the ground, hearing my voice t- telling me in this eerily calm manner that this was this was me dying, that I was witnessing myself dying. And... um feeling like, you know, someone was kicking me in the chest because my air, the air was getting knocked out of me, knowing that my bones were breaking and I was still tomahawking and the world was spinning. Um, so you didn't just fall and go kaput. You fell, hit something, fell again, mm-hmm. kind of went down the mountain that way. Yeah. I was told I impacted the side of the mountain maybe six times. Jesus. 
And so as a scientist, I'm thinking like, holy crap, like that's a lot of opportunities for me to mess my shit up (laughs) and hit my head, you know, have internal bleeding, you know, have, be paralyzed. I mean, I know people that, in fact, there was a rescue in the Indian Peaks this summer of of a man falling 15 feet and he died because he fell on his head. And so I, I, I think about that, those, that instance, it, the, the, me impacting the mountain so many times. And I, and I think, how the heck did I not die? Well, not only, I mean, not only did you not die, you didn't suffer a concussion, mm-hmm. didn't experience any internal bleeding. <laughs> I wasn't paralyzed. Weren't paralyzed, didn't break anything in your leg really right yeah no I didn't I didn't even and I know people who've like fractured their pelvis and that didn't even happen to me um I broke my back which was pretty intense um how many breaks did you suffer uh 14 bones um and then that doesn't include all the you know stitches and lacerations I had and the ligament damage um but yeah I broke I broke 14 bones in total and I had never broken a bone before and I mean I, you know, I broke both wrists. I broke, so both bones in my arms and in both of my arms, I broke three ribs. I had like, obviously my, my feet were messed up. Um, one ankle was sprained so badly. They said it wasn't broken, but I'm pretty sure one of the, like the, it, the, the fibula at that point where it gets really narrow before it hits the the ankle bone. Um, I think that was fractured. And then uh, there was metatarsals and my feet were like the bones in my feet were definitely broken. I'm not sure how many in each. <laughs> and then L4, L5 was broken. Um, so I, and then one of the major injuries that, I mean, in fact, I'm still recovering from, um, is the ligament in my foot was ruptured and not just any ligament. It was the Liz Franck fracture. And that's like a major contributing ligament to the arch of your foot. And your foot is so intricate. Your metal tarsals have to be aligned in order to run or walk properly. And they had to have surgery, place some screws in there to align the bones. So the ligament would reheal in. And um, at that point, the doctor told me I would never run again yet, let alone compete. Do you think there is anything about your physiology that not only helped you survive, but all things considered, helped you survive relative, I mean, <laughs> relative, I mean, you weren't intact, but like you're back intact yeah. now. I mean, that should have been a lot worse. Mm-hmm. And fortunately it wasn't, but do you think there's anything about your physiology or your athletic history or something that helped you survive that as well as you did? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think about it frequently. Um, I think, yes, there is something there. My coach actually refers to me as, well, what is the actually word? He, hilly Wolverine or something like this. Like, you know, Wolverine, how he doesn't, he can heal, but he um, doesn't experience pain. So it's a hilly Wolverine because I can heal but I, I do experience pain. <laughs> um, so there's that, like the super healing part of it. Um, so maybe like that's just part of my physiology. Um, but also like I've read a lot of books about survival and in particular, this one book is called Deep Survival. It's by, by Lawrence Gonzalez. And um, he talks about how during these like fighter pilots or there's these super stressful moments. And if you freeze, if you are become tense, um, like in a car accident too, like that's when you break your bones. But if you relax, 
people actually come out more unscathed. And I think that's what happened to me because it was that eerily calm voice that told myself, like, this matter of factly, like, you're dying. I'm amazed at how lucid you were <laughs> as you were falling and having mm-hmm. heard you describe that a couple times. Now, that's why I asked that question because most people would just be freaking the fuck out. I know. And that's that's what I don't understand is, and I've always been very calm under pressure. I mean, you know, in graduate school in a a certain, a very stressful situation when I'm giving a formal talk to all these, like these, these panel of experts. Um, And I just, I'm calm and I, I think I respond well in a high stress situation, but I've never been in this kind of a stressful situation. Um, And yeah, it was just matter of factly. And I think I was able to accept the fact that I was dying instead of just fighting it. And in that way, I think I was able to kind of protect my head and fall in a way. Like I said, I remember whenever I would hit, I was scrambling to like stop my momentum. Like I was trying actively to like not die, but I was also passively relaxing and knowing that like this was happening. I had to you know, not completely freak out. Um, And even when the rescue operation was happening. Well, it's like we say to our athletes in other situations, control the controllables. And there wasn't a lot that Mm. you could control in that situation, but you could control your mind, number one. And maybe to some degree, how you were falling, maybe that was it. Maybe that was enough to help you come out of it. Maybe. And that's also something I didn't mention about like just training and the explorative part of running. Something I've learned that I've always taken with me is problem solving that that comes from my scientific background as well, is that I can have a plan going into something, but it doesn't always go according to plan. In fact, most races don't go perfectly. Well, I have this conversation with my athletes all the time, not just the ultra Mm -hmm. runners, but racing, Mm -hmm. no matter the distance, it's one giant exercise in problem solving. Mm -hmm. And as it gets longer and steeper and all, like you have more variables that you Mm -hmm. have to deal with. Um, But at its core, that's what racing is. It's a giant exercise in problem solving. Exactly. And making snap decisions and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. And if you can't, if you can't do that, if all of a sudden something goes wrong and then you freak out and you can't, you, you don't know how to make a solution or make things better or kind of, you know, figure it out. Um, it can snowball and it can get worse. And so I think that's something that I've always had and something that I like doing and enjoy doing it's like, and I've, I always do it. It's how I think. Like if something goes wrong, I am thinking of 10 different alternatives to fix this problem. And I think that's another reason as to why I survived because I was problem solving in those moments of, okay, what can I do? What can I control? And let go of the things that you can't. So the other fortunate thing about this situation is that there were other people there, which mm. if I, I mean, that would have been terrifying just to watch, but yeah. they were able to help you mm-hmm. as well. And you lost consciousness, I believe, at some at point. At some point, um, not for very long, because um, one of the first people on the scene was this this runner who was running behind me, and he saw it happen, and he scrambled down to find me. Um, and he said he found me, and I was unconscious, but like within seconds, I Came woke to. up. And what do you remember from that moment when you woke up? I remember his face, um, and I just remember so much pain. Um, the world was literally pulsing. Um, I, I felt like I was kind of going in and out of consciousness. Um, like someone was like putting like a, you know, a blanket across my eyes. And then all of a sudden I, you know, the light would come on again and like turning on and off the lights just because the pain was so, was so intense. 
And then, um, you know, he was kind of bracing me so I wouldn't fall down the hill more. Um, and then more people came, um, like Martina Valmosai, she's a photographer, um, Ian Corliss, and then I saw Killian, um, and then, you know, the doctor came and, um, you know, then they hoisted me up on the, um, on the cot to get me to the helicopter. Were you um, still worried that you were going to die in that moment? The whole time. I think the whole time I wasn't talking. Um, I was just kind of observing people around me and then I was just concentrated on the pain. And um, the whole time there's a narrative in my mind, like, stay calm. Like, but like, you're, you're still like, you're still dying. Like you are dying. This is, this is it. Um, and I think I was able to stay calm because I knew that they were helping me, but I was still just worried that I wasn't going to get to the hospital. Take me through the next few days after the accident. So I was at the hospital in Norway and, um, well, up until that point, I mean, getting into the helicopter was insanely painful um, because they had to put me on this cot and it was vibrating. And so it, it was just, it was hurting, you know, like my bones are broken. It was just really hurting even more. And it felt like I was falling all over again because I was in the air. Um, and then once I finally got to the hospital and they did all the, you know, x-rays, um, they were astounded that I didn't have any internal bleeding, that my legs were fractured, that my skull wasn't fractured. Um and then it was just kind of, I just had to be sedated with morphine. And I, I'm not one to even take an ibuprofen. I do not like painkillers, but I literally couldn't sleep because the pain was just so intense. I had so many lacerations. So they would try to like, you know, clean, clean me up. Um, I had to go into surgery several times to clean out the wounds because they were so deep. I had to have an external fixation on my wrist um, because it was broken so badly. And in order for it to heal correctly, they needed to secure it in some fashion. Um, I remember my hair was a mess. Like it was just a bloody, sweaty tangle. Um, and, but my, like my, I was braided it and it was like, they couldn't get it loose because it was so tangled. So like one of the nurses was trying to like cut out the braid from my hair. Um, and that was painful because, you know, it's like I had all these stitches in my head and they're like pulling on my hair. Um, I remember my mother coming um, and this was like maybe two days. All these memories that I have are probably more from like two days after the accident because the first two days were just a constant blur. Like I had that reoccurring dream every time I closed my eyes and that I was falling and that I was dying. And it wasn't until my mother came, which is about the second day, that I realized that it, that was me. And did she have to fly over from the States because she, she wasn't did. at the race mm -mm. with you? Yeah, so she actually, the North Face flew her out um, because, you know, can you imagine her getting that phone call? No. Yeah, and so she, and she was, they were watching the race. They were staying up to watch it, and they knew that someone fell, and then Killian or Emily, but one of them called her and, and told her it was me. They didn't publish my name at first because they didn't want her to read that, and um, so she flew over, which it's a long flight because it's so far north, and... Um, she stayed with me until I was able to return home, which wasn't until two weeks later. So you returned home two weeks later. You had had how many surgeries up until that uh, point? Probably three. And then yeah. you got back to Colorado, go see your doctors, yeah. and they find all kinds of other stuff yeah. that you didn't even know about. <laughs> yep. That's when they discovered the, the injury in my foot, which your body is like, you know, it's already healing. Bones breaking takes like eight weeks, but so this is two weeks into healing. So... They had already missed this ligament. So it's like, wow, the, the surgery was pretty dire to have right away because it didn't want to heal anymore incorrectly. 
And the same went for my wrists. They had to take out the external fixation in one wrist, reoperate on it, and then operate on the other wrist. Um, so I had three more surgeries when I came back into the States. Um, and in all this time, like I had, you know, I was told I couldn't weight bear on my foot for three months. And um, my other ankle was not in good shape. Like it was black and blue. And I think I like torn, stretched, ripped, twisted every single ligament in my ankle. And it was super painful to, to even like stand on. I wasn't on crutches. I was on this, I was in a wheelchair because I couldn't walk. Um, and I couldn't use crutches because I couldn't bear weight through my wrists. So I had to get this special walker. Um, and, you know, I didn't, I wasn't able to get that until after a week back in the States. Um, I couldn't shower. I couldn't like lift more than a Coke bottle, um, a can of water. Um, How was your emotional state at the time in the two to four weeks after the accident? Oh, man. Um, I was pretty low. And I, I mean, I'm familiar with being depressed, but like not any sort of, you know, I can shake it off, right? I'm a very optimistic person. Um, but this was just another level. Like it was just this helpless, hopeless feeling constantly because I couldn't do anything myself. And that feeling actually persisted more than just the first two weeks. Um, that feeling persisted for months and months because I, you know, of course I had to use my problem solving ability to find how to live, to figure out how to do just mundane tasks, you know, how to eat with a fork. I had to like make a contraption with styrofoam so I can actually hold it and like shovel food into my mouth. Um, I mean, so the problem solving thing kept me occupied, but it was just this deep lagging, nagging feeling of just not feeling whole, not feeling like myself, literally feeling like a part of me was missing. Well, you strike me as a pretty self-sufficient person. So (laughs) to have to rely on other people to help you out, even though you're grateful for Mm -hmm. their support, isn't always the easiest thing to deal with. No, it's... um it's really hard and I'm stubborn and I don't like asking for help. It's probably, you know, it's one of the aspects. I mean, it's, it's not a good aspect that I, that I attribute that I have. Um, but it's also a good attribute in the fact that it it makes me work very hard and I'm a go-getter and I'm determined and I'm self-sufficient so I can accomplish these things. But asking for help is probably one of the hardest things I had to do. And it affected how I felt about myself, like self-worth, felt like I was weak or I should feel ashamed for asking for help. But that was actually one of the most valuable things I learned from the whole process is that there's actually strength in that. There's strength in in knowing when you need to ask for help and building a community that's willing to help you out. Along those lines, how important has that community been for you, both real and virtual? Because not long after the accident, you posted a video to your Instagram account, just updating everyone on what had happened mm-hmm. from your hospital bed. And for those of you listening who haven't seen it, scroll back in Hillary's Instagram feed. You'll yeah. find it from August of 2017. Mm-hmm. And there was a tremendous outpouring from yeah. all around the world. Mm-hmm. And obviously, once you get home, you're from <laughs> Colorado, your family's there, your friends yeah. are there, um, obviously want to help you as as much as possible. Just talk to me a little bit about how impactful all of that was on you. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, from for the, from the view of social media, I mean, one of the main reasons why I posted that was just because my friends and family, they weren't able to see me. They weren't, they weren't there. I mean, my mother was there, but my dad wasn't. And I could, you know, talk to him on the phone. Um, 
and talk to my media family, but everyone else, they, you know, they, that's what's really cool about the social media is that you can follow someone from afar and you can see into what they're doing. And so I posted it because, um, I knew people were asking and my phone was broken at this point. So, you know, you fall 150 feet and this is not working. So, um, I didn't have any way to get in contact with people. And so, um, I had a, I was able to post this video to, um, my Instagram and, um, it was incredible. Like all of these people that I didn't know, um, obviously all my friends, um, they're being so supportive. Um, it helped me to keep going, um, throughout my recovery of certain days when, you know, there were days where I was just so exhausted and I just didn't even want to get up out of bed because I didn't see the point. There's so much time that I, that I spent wishing that the accident would have killed me because it felt like it was easier than to have to face the pain and face the challenges of everyday life. Um, but then there, I'd receive a message and some voice of encouragement, sometimes from a dear friend, sometimes from a complete stranger. And it just built this community that I felt that I had near and far. And it, and it again, let me discover the strength that I had within me, whether or not that I, you know, it was still there. I mean, trail running, I felt I could experience it in a new way, but talking with complete strangers or, or, or my friends supporting me, um, it also allowed me to kind of dig deep and, and find that within me. And in particular in Boulder, I mean, I remember I, I had my birthday, August 26th, um, right then after the accident, after I got home and um, the whole running community showed up for me and they all came and Amazing. Yeah, it was a it was a big huge celebration, and um, there's a huge running community there, and it was people that I hadn't, you know, I travel a lot, and so I don't always get to go to these, you know, running clubs and groups that they have, but it didn't matter. Like people, people were there for me, and and really like people showed up for me because I wasn't able to live at home for a while because I had stairs and I couldn't go upstairs unless I scooted up on my butt, <laughs> but that's dangerous because I couldn't I couldn't fall because I didn't I couldn't break anything again. And so I had to, my, a couple of my friends took me into their house and like built a ramp so I could go up and down these two steps. And it was just incredible aspects of community like that, that I, that people had me and people would give me rides to the grocery store and help me literally, like I couldn't, I couldn't drive. Um, I had to hire a car service to, to, you know, go to work. I was teaching at a small college then and, um, I didn't want to miss work and I needed something else to do. And so, and when my car service wasn't going and I taught night classes, there's friends there picking me up and helping me every step of the way. Gives me goosebumps <laughs> just hearing you describe that. How are you thinking about your future at that time as you're barely able to, as you said, get out of bed and mm-hmm. you're feeling pretty down, but you're alive. You know you're alive. You know you're going to survive now at this point. How are you thinking about the coming months and years and what you'll be able to do with your life? Yeah. You know, just like the feeling of falling and having and having that scary realization, but calmness of accepting potentially dying, I felt like I had that with my future. I had to just let go of what I couldn't control. And I had to micro-focus on what I could accomplish in a day, whether that was being okay with not having any energy to, you know, get out of my apartment that day or finding the motivation to go to PT 
or asking my coach to come and pick me up and just take me to coffee or just like come on a little scoot walk with me. Um, literally, it was it, it it was those moments that I had to focus on and let go of the bigger picture because I, if I were to think about the fact that I couldn't run, I think that would have held me back. And I, instead of focusing on that, I focused on the everyday life and I focused on believing that if I did everything I could in a certain day to take care of myself, that that would add up to a bigger picture and I'd be able to run again. I, um, I use this analogy because it's how I think about it. I think about building a log cabin or a house. I lived in this ranch style house with this, it was this brick house. Uh, as a kid, and every brick, if you if you look at it from afar, it looks perfect. But if you go in, especially log cabins, <laughs> um, but if you go in and you look at the individual logs or the individual bricks, they're not perfect. Um, but it's the bigger picture. It's the compilation. It's the combination of all of those things working together to form the foundation. And so I thought about it that way. Like I thought, okay, this brick is not perfect today. This log is not perfect, but I'm going to put it here. I'm going to put it at the base. It's part of it's part of this foundation. And tomorrow I'm going to lay another brick. And it doesn't have to be perfect either, but it's going to reinforce what I did yesterday. And it's still going to add to this bigger picture. It's going to get stronger as mm-hmm. you put more and more of them together. together. And so that's kind of what I thought about it. So even if I had a different day, a, bit dif- a different day than before, a difficult day um, where I felt defeated, it's, I still did my best that day. And that idea that it doesn't always have to be perfect just took some pressure off and um, it helped me to focus on what was really important and that was just me at my core and building a strong foundation. Um, and I mean, I think using that, it's, it doesn't always have to be physical as athletes. For me, it's like a lot of the the mental aspect of it, the emotional aspect of it. Um, I had to confront those fears and feelings every single day, um, sometimes all day, multiple times a day um, of being being scared and being afraid and being fearful that I would never get back to doing this thing that I loved. I had to deal with these uncomfortable emotions and but that still went into building this strong foundation that I that I have. And um yeah, I think it I think in the in the long run, it definitely helped me to get back to some sort of state where I could actually start to run again. Um, but I think for me it was all rooted in this belief and again letting go of what I couldn't control and focusing on what I could. How are we doing on time? So I don't want oh. to keep you too long. Oh, it's whatever you right, like. Let's keep rolling then. <laughs> Um, what did you do from an emotional standpoint to recover? I mean, mm-hmm. we can talk about the physical recovery and I'm sure that was very extensive mm-hmm. given all that you dealt with, but on the emotional side of things, what did you do to build that strength back, that resolve and find the motivation to keep moving forward and to start pursuing not just running again, but the rest of your life. Yeah. Um, it was very hard. Um, it's not a simple answer. Um, I, th- I think really it goes back to this whole idea. Like as a scientist, I sometimes 
actually a lot of times, a lot of friends that I talk to, I am so confused by the human condition and emotions. Like emotions are not logical. They don't make sense to me. So sometimes I feel like I'm this weird person who is just like, I'm too literal. I, I, I don't understand the complexity of emotions. And when people like act weird, I'm like, why can't they just tell me directly how they're feeling? Like quit with this passive aggressive bullshit and just like tell me directly. Like I deal very well with that. But I mean, if you have a friendship, you know, you there's a lot of gray area. Like emotions are not always so straightforward. So as a scientist, I really do not like it. I do not like them. And I struggle with that a lot. But through this whole process, I had to face that uncertainty head on. And like I said before, what drew me to neuroscience was the, the absolute precision and of the chemistry involved in it. But the other part of neuroscience that I love is this mysterious portion that I'll never understand. And so I thought about that a lot and I'm like, okay, well, I have to embrace this mystery in myself and find a way to work through it. Things aren't black and white as I'd like them to be. So focusing more on the gray and leaning into this, this gray mix of muck that sometimes just feels impossible. Um, but giving my permission, giving myself permission to be sad, giving my permi- myself permission to be angry, to tell myself it's okay that that I that I felt like I wanted to die, and those aren't really acceptable emotions for a lot of people to have or even say outwardly and openly. But I had to go there. I had to be able to experience the whole breadth and depth of emotions that I was dealing with at this certain at this time. And it's something that I still continue to have to give myself permission and um, kind of uh, approach it with grace and some sort of um, patience because it's something that's going to be a part of me forever. And, and some days I'm out on a run and a ridgeline and I'm scrambling and it doesn't feel good. And I listen to that. I listen to that gut feeling of not being comfortable, whether it's like just how I'm feeling that day or the the mountains and the weather and allowing myself to be like, okay, look, this route isn't happening today. I'm going to turn around. I'm going to do something else. And um, it's it's absolutely essential for me to be able to do that. And I think if I were to just push through and not pay attention to those emotions and just focus on the physical aspect of recovery, I think I'd still be dealing with the trauma. And I don't know if I would be where I am today. Do you think your background in neuroscience gave you the tools to work through a lot of that? I think it did on the like the academic level. Like I could read about it and be like, oh, look, I've seen people like struggle with PTSD. So logically, I knew kind of what it was going to be like, but from an experiential level, I had no idea. Like for instance, the first time I heard a helicopter sound when I was on a run after the accident, well, that's PTSD because when I heard it, I immediately fell to, my, fell to the floor and I started crying because I immediately was rushed back into the rescue operation. Right back to that place, right? Yeah, and I had, I know what PTSD is. I'm like thinking to my mind logically like, oh, this is me experiencing PTSD. <laughs> but like I had never experienced it on a personal level before and it's 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 intense. Um, but instead of, you know, being angry or, you know, being like, okay, well, 
Like, oh, well, that sucked that it would like ruin my run or, you know, being angry with it. It's giving myself permission to, to feel that and to kind of dive into those emotions and figure out, figuring out where they're coming from, um, and being patient with it. And it's probably something I'm still going to deal with for, for a long time. But, um, knowing that, um, I, I mean, and now I believe that it's not a weakness. I know that it's, a, it's, it's something that is important to deal with and to pay attention to and to it's it's part of being a human. Now you were told that you would never run again mm-hmm. after the accident. Obviously, it's not something that you accepted, but <laughs> did you always have that thought once you realized that you were going to recover to some degree that you were going to try come hell or high water Mm -hmm. to get your shoes back on and get out there and just be able to explore, even if that meant you could never compete again. Yeah. And so I think early on, um, I told myself that, well, first when the doctor told me that I was like, well, she does not know me. So I'm just going to try my hardest. And I definitely had to, there was a lot of time when I think when I couldn't walk, it was a hard concept to think about. And I had to not waste energy thinking about, oh gosh, I just want to run. I want to, I want to do this. I had to focus immediately on my recovery, like that day, the PT that day, and believe that, like, again, that brick analogy that this work went into something bigger. Um, but I was so scared to try it. And I actually had to talk to my PTs multiple times, my coach, to make sure I was scared. I didn't want to do permanent damage. I didn't you've got like metal in yeah. your ankles. Mm-hmm. I mean my feet. Things are reconstructed. Mm-hmm. I mean your whole, you know, your <laughs> anatomy has been completely you yeah. know, reneged. I mean, yeah. there's a lot going on there. Exactly. And so I mean I worked with the PT early on to make sure that biomechanically like I was trying to get as strong as I possibly could. But again, like if you if you don't not weight bearing on your on your legs for a long time there's some changes. Atrophy. And yeah, that happens pretty soon and pretty quickly. And um, so I definitely held on to that. I definitely held on to the belief that I could run again, but it came with a lot of apprehension. And I even told myself early on, like, I think I, I had to, before I could try running, I had to be completely at peace with the fact that I would never compete again. And so before I even tried, I think that was my apprehension. I didn't want to start running with the idea that, oh, I had to start training for this race. I had to let go of that completely and just be all okay with if I could just go out and run and move again at no matter the pace, that would just make me so happy. Um, And I think that's what carried me through because it was never about like last year, I know I competed in some races. But it was never about that. I never had that goal. In fact, I didn't even hop into those races until a week before. And it was last minute because I didn't want my over my goal to be confused with some sort of competition. Yeah. Well, we'll get to those. Spoiler, they went well. <laughs> but when you first were able to start running again, it's not like you could just go out and run three miles, five miles, even a mile. I mean, no. you started with... I don't even know if it was, was it a minute? Did you start with a minute Probably of running? 30 seconds. 30 seconds, yeah. small increments of running, still not knowing how it's going to go. This is the first time, you know, you've tried to move faster than a walk since mm-hmm. the accident happened. Take me through that first run, and I'm using air quotes here <laughs> yeah. for those of you who can't see us <laughs> off mic here. <laughs> uh, yes, definitely air quote run. Um, 
I remember, I mean, it was definitely, it was a cold day in January. Um, This was five months into my recovery and I had been hiking, but I hadn't been running and I was really scared to run. And Had you been given a green light at that point to, hey, Hillary, if you want, you can try to run, but hey, be careful of A, B, and C. Yeah. So at this point, my um, my PT said I could, and I went to the doctors, and they, you know, did an X ray and all this stuff, and they said I could start. They could. They said I could start running. Um, I think it was. I mean, I, I de- their t- my PT said that to me before my doctor did, and this is that doctor that told me I could never run again. And I was just like, it was kind of like, okay, like, all right, well, I guess I can now, and there's that competitive side of me. It's like, well, she said it, I guess I should. Um, And I went out on this gravel path that was just this flat crushed path. There's nothing to fall on, nothing to trip on. It was completely non-technical path. And um, I started out hiking because I was like, I don't know if I'm ready for this. And I don't know how running is going to feel. And I then decided to start running. And I think I did 30 seconds or a minute. And I was just kind of like, the whole time I was running, I just heard that narrative. Like I literally went back into that dream um, of me falling. And I was under my breath the whole time just saying, okay, Hillary, don't fall, don't fall, don't fall. And because I was afraid of tripping. Because the last, like my brain remembered what happened. Even if I didn't vividly remember you know, that that motion, the last time I did that, I nearly died. My brain definitely did. And it was trying to protect me. And I I still, I still did it. I remember I did the minute, like 30 seconds, minute on, then like walked for a bit and then did it again. And um, the whole time, every time I did it, it immediately would go back there. Um, so you never got to this moment where you're like, oh shit, I'm running. This is awesome. I want to keep going. It was always like, don't fall, don't fall. Don't it was fall. always like that. Um, so it wasn't, in t- I mean, afterwards I was like, I think I called my coach and I was like, I just did this. Like, look at, look at what I uploaded. <laughs> like on, I think I had Strava at that point. Um, but, uh, you know, and he's like, this is good. But then I needed, I didn't do it for a while after that. I was scared. I literally dreaded running and I was scared that... It was it it hurt. It didn't feel good actually. Like it did. It was very uncomfortable, and I think that's part of why I didn't want to do it again because I was afraid I was going to cause more pain um, and damage. But it uh, it didn't feel good physically, but also emotionally. And so I actually did not do it again until I had a friend to go with me, and that was my coach Adam. And then. Um, Serendipitously, I had my friend Lizzie, who she was suffering from a TFL injury, and she had started her run walking thing again. And so it wasn't until I, like, two weeks later, that I started actually that I did that again, and it was with her. It's crazy as I think about it. That was a year ago. Now here yeah. we are in January. Yes, 2019. that was a year this ago. This is January 2018. You're sitting across from me, and <laughs> you just knocked out 14 miles this morning. At, San Francisco Running Company, which yeah. is just incredible when you think about everything <laughs> yeah. that you've gone through. Do you ever have those days where you're like, holy shit, like yeah. a year ago, I was barely moving beyond yeah. the walking pace. And here I am going out for runs and laughing and taking photos and just genuinely enjoying yourself. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, I have it all the time. In fact, from Mount Tam, I did a Mount Tam run on Friday and Mount Tam was the first hike I did back in November, end of November, beginning of December, when I was first cleared to be able to walk. 
Mount Tam- when I first met you. You yes. were out here for North Face. Yeah, and it literally, and so in 2017, North Face, it, I hiked the 10K because that's all I could do. And I was literally in tears because it hurt so bad. And that was just walking. And so I, I have those epiphanies all the time. And, and, and it's crazy to kind of revisit a place and think about. So not too long ago, I was... I was not able to move. And so it's it's this idea that I don't take anything for granted. And I don't think I did before, but now it's just a deeper level of just enjoying being able to move in each moment and kind of the ups and the downs that life brings. Um, but it's absolutely, yeah, it's absolutely crazy to think uh, a year ago I was barely running now. And in fact... A February after my accident, I had to have a second surgery to remove some screws in my foot that I broke. <laughs> because you were running? Probably, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's also just like the screws, I mean, they're titanium, but it's like it's like a paperclip. They're, they're, through, they're bridging this joint. Yeah. And if you bend a paperclip so much, it breaks. So I think that's what happened. Um, I think, I don't know. Um, but it wasn't, so I had to take a break again. And so it wasn't until end of March, beginning of April, that I actually started that whole process again of running one minute off the next, running one minute off the next. And fast forward a few months from that, you ran Broken Arrow, mm-hmm. Sky Race in yeah. June. You did the VK mm-hmm. and then you went the next day and did the 52K. Yep. And again, I decided like the week before that I was going to do it, that I should just rip off the Band-Aid and see if I could run. When did you feel like you were back in quote unquote training. I know those are last minute decisions, but when did you get to the point where like, okay, I'm over this initial hump of obviously running a minute, walking a minute and just piecing all this together. Like I'm actually going out and running and I can run for a few hours now and actually think about jumping into a race. So again, it was, I think it was my coach, um, who, who, who told me I should just do it because I was actually training. Um, I think it was, I don't know if I realized it. I was just trying to, I was just enjoying being out moving. I hadn't been running that much at that point. So the reason why I chose first the VK was because, you know, yeah, you were running, but it's literally, it was like lower impact because it was just uphill. Um, that's your jam. Yeah, that's my jam. So I was like, sweet, I'll just do that. And actually, I got second behind Morgan Aratola, and mm-hmm. she's like a national. Like, she's she's made Olympian. a couple mountain teams. Yeah, and yeah. so for like uphill, like cross country skiing, and I was only like ten seconds behind her, so it was like a pretty good race. Um, so I was like, oh, all right, sweet. I guess I got the fitness, but like, because I had been doing cross training, but I hadn't really been doing running, and um. It was him. He told me to do it. And I was like, okay, I trust you. Like, I'm going to try. And because it was a sky race, I knew there was, you know, hiking involved. But I was more worried about the downhill running because I was scared of that. Like, I wasn't sure where to put my feet. My ankles were still giving me trouble. Same with my, like, ligament injured foot. Um, But I just went for it. And it wasn't pretty. Like, I, I mean, Broken Arrow Sky Race is two loops of this course. And so the first loop, I think I was crying the whole time because I was just traumatized like it was coming from nowhere but I was crying like it like it wasn't the most fun experience but then the second lap I was just like okay like you can do this like you did it once like you can do this again and the second loop was faster than the first and I was able to like let it rip a little bit more on the downhills and it just it it felt a little bit more I felt like I was getting it back a little bit I didn't feel like myself like the same runner but I was just so happy that I was able I I finished and what did it feel like to cross that finish line and ring the bell in Squaw? I was overwhelmed. Um, 
I was just feeling all the emotions. I was relieved that it was over. I was so incredibly proud that I did it. I was happy. I was so sad that, you know, like, and just because, you know, that this whole, this, this injury had like changed my life. I was angry that it happened and that I was trying to kind of grit myself back. I was literally experiencing all of those emotions at the same time. But it was so special because I got to see my friends and give um, the race directors some big hugs and, you know. Um, just like, all hit you like a tidal wave. Yeah. And I mean, all I could do was just cry and smile and celebrate. And then get on a plane and go to Italy and win a sky race a week later. Yeah, yep, that's also as, as you do. <laughs> so this is back in June. So we're like six months or so ago. Yeah. How has your? We haven't talked about how what you did in training before the accident, but how has it changed mm. since? the accident and given what your body went through? Yeah. So it's definitely changed. Um, I've always, I mean, in tennis, we'd always do like strength training and cross training. Obviously, obviously, especially for any sport, the more specific you can be with training, the better it is. Like if you want to be a good runner, well, then you better run, you know? But for me, it helped me to, to realize that, yes, I'm a runner, but I am also an athlete and I respond well to being an athlete and moving. And so for me, I was cross-training. I used the stair climber. That's one of the most specific things I could do besides running. I could just do uphill workouts on a stair climber, hold on to the side so I wouldn't fall. Great. I got a gravel bike. I was able to work my cardiovascular engine climbing in the foothills of Boulder and being able to get outside and away from the cars and the roads on a gravel bike. Um, and then it didn't matter how fast I would go downhill because you're just coasting anyways. So, yeah. Um, I w- got in this, the weight room. I mean, strength training has been essential. I mean, every running injury that I've that I've seen or from athletes that I coach, friends of mine, um, even my own injuries, like small injuries before this happened, have originated from hips, like weak glutes, weak hips, hip flexors. So really strengthening that. and so like paying attention to those things mm-hmm. that maybe you weren't before. Exactly. Addressing imbalances, working on like posterior chain. I was in the weight room six days a week before I could run. Like not even doing anything crazy, but just doing body work and band work. Were you in the weight room at all before your injury? Was that a part of your training regime? So it, it was, but more in the off season. Okay. And now I'm able to incorporate it more into on season and just full year round. Like it gets heavier in the off season, but um, just because, you know, I'm not running as many miles so I can support that weight load. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's been a sen- an essential part of my training. And obviously uphill skiing, I've, been, I've been doing that ever since I've been in the sport, but using that as kind of just a playground and um, using that as like a low, in- not low intensity, but low impact um, workout. And so to me, it's really taught me that I respond really well to cross training. And in fact, I like it because it keeps it fun. And yeah, to periodize my training in that way. And a lot of, I discovered that I was actually pretty good at maybe stage races. I did trans Rockies. I did soft rock. I did, I coined this term, soft UTMB. (laughs) But being able to just kind of go out there for long days, day after day. And I actually, the last year in 2017, I ran some of my biggest training mileage during a week ever in my whole entire running career. That includes number of miles, like Trans Rockies was 120 miles. Um, 
UTMB, the whole course that I did with all the runs, I did like 120 or something miles with that in a handful of days. And then like was able to run later in the week. So I did like 130 mile week. Like what the heck? I wouldn't recommend doing that all the time, but like I was able to do that and still recover afterwards and feel okay and strong enough to do it, you know, and with the insane elevation gain that happens there. So I think I was able to um, just like reach these new depths and understand kind of my ability as an endurance athlete. And I could take, take that, take that forward. Um, but, and it definitely in, in incorporates cross training. And I was actually, I mean, I liked the uphill stuff. So I was, before I could run, I was hiking. So I would, I would hike up hard and then I'd, you know, to get my heart rate up and then I'd, you know, trot downhill before I could run. Do you think you're at the same level that you were before your injury as far as how competitive you can be at these races you like to do? Or do you think you're a little behind that? Or are you even ahead of where you were before you the know, injury? I'm not sure. Um, it's it's hard to know. I mean, uh, that Cortina trail race that I that I ran a week after Broken Arrow, um, I actually had the course record on that race um, two years ago in 2016. And this, I finished only three minutes behind that time. Um, but I don't know. Um, this next year, I'm going to do some more competitive races and we'll see, see how I stack up. Well, um, <laughs> shit. That was less than six months after you started running again. So <laughs> just the pragmatic side of me says that with continued consistent training, <laughs> there's no reason it can't be. Yeah. And, and so that's exciting. That's exciting too. I mean, I think um, I'm figuring out kind of my ability as an endurance athlete. And this year I'm going to do TDS. I've never done a race. It's 145 kilometers now. I've never done a, like a hundred mile race before, but I think just um, like kind of the data that I've gathered now and my ability to withstand um, the like the hours and all that kind of hard training. Um, I think there's no reason why I can't, you know, have discovered a distance that I'm, that I'm good at. So you skipped over something. You've got another race before TDS. Where are you going before that? Oh, I'm going to Tromso. Back yep. to the scene of the crime. I am. Yeah. So I'm really excited, actually. A little scared, a little nervous, but I'm going to do the race. I, I'm not going to, I don't have plans to do it at a race pace because I think it's important to use it as a healing opportunity, like emotionally. Um, so I, I but I want to go see where I almost fell. Well, where I almost died, not where I almost fell, where I fell and almost died. Almost to, Kind of just close the book in a way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely to close the book. I don't think I was ready to do it last year. And I was, you know, in the midst of traveling and um, I wasn't really focused on it. I was just more focused on kind of rediscovering myself and what I could accomplish um, as an athlete and uh, just really enjoying the place that I was at and moving again because I didn't think that I would be able to compete last year. Um, but this year, I definitely want to want to go back. I've already taken up a ton of your time, which I'm super appreciative of. So yeah. this will be my last question. How has your relationship with running and how have you changed as a runner since your accident? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, it's something to think about all the time. Um, my relationship with running has changed because I was given an opportunity, a second chance to fall in love with running again. And I don't take it for granted. Um, every run that I go on, no matter if it's painful, I mean, my ankles still hurt. 
Sometimes you're just not feeling it on a given day. Um, but I can do it. And it doesn't matter if I'm faster or slower than I was. I'm still out here doing it. And I will never take it for granted. And it's just such a gift. And it's such an incredible experience to be able to fall in love with something that I cherish so much. And through this injury and this whole process, I was able to to experience that again. And it's a completely different love than I thought I had with running before. Um, and that's just so special. And it's nothing that I am trying to describe it, but I don't think it's anything that I can really describe in an eloquent way. But it's just this incredible feeling um, that I feel like the world, I have this new depth. I feel like it's it's brighter. It's more vibrant. Um, and it's beautiful. And so I'm grateful for it, actually. Um, and I think that's just because of how I refused to give up and I refused to be victim to someone else's diagnosis. Um, and I fought for something that I loved and I believed at my core that I could. And that's what I'm taking with me moving forward um, is this unfaltering, unwavering belief that I could do anything that I set my mind to. And um, I hope that if, you know, everyone has a story, everyone has something that they're dealing with, they're overcoming, whether it's an injury or just an emotional um, something something that they're dealing with on a like on an emotional level or a job change, a divorce, anything like this, um, that if they actually dive into those difficult aspects, those uncomfortable feelings, that they can actually change or you know overcome these things if they just hold on to this belief that it will be better at you know if if they put in the work and lay down those those imperfect bricks. That's a great place to wrap up this conversation. Really <laughs> glad you're here. Really glad we had this conversation. It's one of my favorite podcast episodes I've done so far. Oh, thank, well, you, thank so you so much. Thanks for having me. All right. Another episode in the books. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the podcast, you know what I'm about to ask you. I'd love it if you went to Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you listen to audio content and left a rating and a review. Only takes a few minutes, but helps new listeners to discover the show, and it really means a lot to me. That's five stars, just a few words, all you need to do. Those of you who've done so already, thank you very much. Also, big thank you to Strava for sponsoring this episode. If you're looking for a little extra motivation on your next run or bike ride, check out their new Athletes Unfiltered podcast. It's a collection of inspiring stories from the Strava community told by the runners and cyclists who live them. I recommend giving it a listen. I've really enjoyed it so far. You can subscribe wherever you consume your audio content. That's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. All the platforms should have it. They also have a landing page at blog.strava.com slash podcast. has links to every episode that they've posted so far. Thank you, Strava, so much for sponsoring the show. Also, big thank you to John Summerford from bearsrecords.com. Thank him every week and with good reason. He helps make this show sound as good as it does week in and week out. Big, big part of my team. Thank you, John. And that's it. I don't think I've got anything else for you this week. So I will catch you next time for another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast.